power vested in the message to, given to us for the transformation of our own souls and the transformation of the world as you use it to awaken the dead, spiritually speaking, to the knowledge of their sin and to the knowledge of a Savior who has died in their place, a sufficient sacrifice like the ram provided as a substitute in the picture of the offering of the covenant son all the way back in Genesis 22. Lord, we now have fulfilled in time, absolutely documented in your holy scriptures, the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world, Jesus Christ, the lamb of God, our sufficient, propitiatory, wrath-absorbing sacrifice. Lord, we thank you for these truths that we are now stewards of as your people. I pray that you would encourage our souls as we study them more in depth this day. And as we turn to the original proclamation of the meaning and interpretation of the gospel itself from the words of your anointed servant, Peter, I pray, Lord, that you would encourage the church as you no doubt did then when they first broke the seal on that scroll, the letter of 1 Peter, and open it with hands shaking, with anticipation, because of the difficulty of their hour and the treasured words of hope, and unrolled and read in the hearing of the congregation, this is how you live. These are sufficient means of grace to stand in a day when faith is challenged and to do more, to advance the kingdom in spite of its enemies to the glory of Almighty God. I pray, Lord, that we would just as fervently heed these scriptures even this day, recognizing these letters are for the church of all time. And I pray that we would be faithful to steward and proclaim this same message to the ends of the earth, wherever you call us, until the coming of our Savior and Lord, the consummation of all history. It's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. This morning, as we turn to God's holy word, I'd encourage you to join me in your scriptures in 1 Peter chapter 5. It's been a few months since we have been in our series on Communion Sundays, going through this first epistle that Peter has written to the church. But today we return, and we return close to its conclusion, the final chapter of 1 Peter. We'll consider at length verses 1 through 5 today, and in our next message, Lord willing, next end of next month, or beginning of next month, we will consider the final words, the second half of the fifth chapter. The title of this morning's message, 1 Peter 5, 1 through 5, is Soul Stewardship. That is care of the soul. There's an old term I think the Puritans made popular called soul care, and I like that term. It basically defines the role of the church in large part to take care of souls, to watch over souls, to be mindful of the conditions whereby the soul remains healthy. And so if you look at 1 Peter as instructions for soul care, you've got a pretty good purpose for the letter, for sure. Soul stewardship, therefore, is the theme of this morning's message as the instructions pertain in 1 Peter 5. The aim of this morning's message, my goal in preaching, is to expound apostolic instruction for legitimate care of souls to expound Peter's words for the legitimate care of souls, even as we seek to be faithful to that goal in the order and in the direction of our church here, Providence, in Cross Lake, Minnesota. With your Bible open to 1 Peter chapter 5, 
Would you stand with me again this morning out of reverence for God's word? And listen as the scriptures are proclaimed in your hearing, beginning in verse 1. 1 Peter 5, verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is the word of God. You may be seated. As we open these scriptures this morning, let, remi- let me remind you of the last verse of the prior chapter. It reads as follows, 419. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. A great theme verse. I mentioned this concept of melodic line that I learned in expository preaching. You know, if you have a song, let's say a movie score or piece of music, orchestrated music, You'll have sometimes a very simple, usually, progression of notes that represents the bass line or the melodic line, the theme. And then there's different points where that builds to a crescendo. It's more obscured in times of tension, so on and so forth. Well, if you think of a piece of music in that way and then use it as an analogy to uh, understand a theme of a book of the Bible, it's a helpful way of of, uh, thinking about the main ideas of the text. And so if you were to ask me, where is the melodic line? Where do we see that simple theme coming most prominently to the fore? I think I would choose chapter 4, verse 19. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Now, in chapter 5, we can see that Peter gives instructions on how exactly to do this. In other words, practical means whereby our souls can be entrusted to our creator even through the means he provides in the church, the role of elders, congregants, all who gather in the name of Jesus Christ. And this is what he addresses in chapter 5. So as chapter 4 closes with this statement we've just read, provides a summary theme of Peter's entire letter. Our last message from 1 Peter closed on this verse, and this verse, I think, raises an important question. This is one by way of application. Who can we trust with our souls? And, of course, a faithful creator is the answer. Now, a little more precisely by way of application, a second question, who do we trust with our souls? If you honestly answer that question, where do you turn for consolation when you're anxious? Where do you turn for reassurance when you're fearful? Where do you turn for confidence when you fear what tomorrow might hold? Answers to that question are indeed places where you have entrusted your soul. Who do we trust with our souls? If it's anything less other than or in competition with Jesus Christ, there's room for repentance as an application of our text today and our text we covered last time. A million voices claim to be trustworthy for the stewardship of our souls. More than this, or maybe in modern language, a million voices like on the internet, you know, me, I can, I can be trusted with your soul. Um, on the internet these days, there's a million voices competing for 
the trust of your mental and spiritual health, you could say. So that's kind of a modern way of speaking about the soul, the spiritual and mental health. Well, those are just basically synonyms for the soul. Who do you trust with the care of your mental health? Well, this, the, Jesus is jealous to own exclusive rights to the care of your mental and spiritual health. May I suggest, and I believe Peter gives us reason to believe this in his apostolic and authoritative words. Now, our own hearts can often betray a tendency to trust the claims of parties competing for our soul's investment. A lot of times, our mental and spiritual health, or our reassurance, or our soul's uh, foundation for confidence is placed in things other than Christ alone, or applications of His Word, or the means of grace that He provides. To this degree, there's room for repentance, as I said before. We can identify, however, with the first readers of this letter. It was hard to trust their souls, or it was hard to find a place for their soul's content, especially as they received these words in the midst of a lot of uncertainty and conflict. The first audience of this letter, the recipients, who we find in chapter 1, verse 1, to be elect exiles of the dispersion and Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So these, the first audience, they received these words of exhortation during times of uncertainty and conflict. When our world is shaken, we can relate to this, let me suggest. And thus, when our world is shaken and our bearings are in question or questionable and the anxieties of our life of life are amplified, the care of our souls is all the more paramount. And the source of our peace of mind needs to be carefully vetted. I've said this recently in other conversations. But if you are in a state of outrage, which is a popular, you know, emotional condition these days, you know, the virtuous are always outraged against some injustice. If you're in a state of outrage, if you're in a state of paranoia or fear, if you're just absolutely captivated by concerns that say COVID, you know, pandemic comes to mind. Uh, So fear, anxiety, and outrage, these states of the soul are basically enemies of discernment. It is very difficult to exercise good discernment when your emotions are so powerfully controlled by a reactive response to troubling scenarios around you. So where can we find peace of mind? Well, peace of mind, sources of peace of mind need to be carefully vetted. And let me suggest doing something like I've been doing lately, which I've found to be awesome for my soul's care. I have made a commitment, more or less, I'm not real legalistic about it, but to listen to the Bible Uh, during my drive time on the way to work, all the way till noon. As long as I have time to listen to a bunch of stuff, I've been uh, overdosing, if you will, on this week, not that you can, but on the scriptures. And I have found this to be a very grounding source of peace of mind for my own soul. To navigate the challenge of soul care during trying times, a church would do well to take Peter's words to heart. He closes his instructions with an appeal to the church. The priority of his closing exhortations makes sense as one considers the church's responsibility. That is, the church is a primary means of discipleship, even in the midst of a culture sometimes hostile to the biblical or Christian worldview. The officers and congregation of Christ's bride must be equipped to direct their the attention of the faithful uh, uh, to direct their attention to their faithful Creator. 
So the church, its officials, and its congregation must be equipped to direct their attention to their faithful creator and encourage others to do the same. And Peter tells us that they do this by means of the grace supplied to the assembly of the saints who trust their crucified, risen, and ascended Savior to secure their eternal destiny. But more than this, 1 Peter provides clear direction, not just for a ticket to heaven, but for faithfulness in building the kingdom of God. Does it not stand to reason, saints, that if Jesus Christ has secured our eternal life, that His Word is also sufficient for us to be faithful in the meantime, building the kingdom of God? Of course, the answer is yes. It's a rhetorical question. But the fact remains, we need to be instructed in how to do this. And so Peter addresses us, even as he did his original audience. Let me give you three points of reference for his concluding words in this letter. Three points of reference. Number one, his authority. His authority. So Peter's authority is a point of reference in verses 1 and 2. Uh, number two, his audience. To whom does he speak? And we find three different audiences in verses 1 through 5 mentioned. And finally, his admonitions his actual instructions, his words of correction, rebuke in some cases, encouragement, his words of exhortation, his admonitions. And that would be all the way through two and two through five. There are more admonitions to the church broadly that we'll cover in our next text. Uh, This morning we'll cover mainly his admonitions to leaders of the church, to elders. So three points of reference. Number one, his authority. Notice in verses one and two, Peter introduces the close of his book in this way. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. And then he goes on to give more admonition to elders. But notice, if you were to ask, well, why should we listen to you, Peter? Or who is giving us these instructions? What is the source and ground of his authority? What makes you the expert? Well, the skeptic is answered in the context here in three ways. I'm just going to add a fourth by way of larger context. We should listen to Peter, number one, because he's a fellow elder. Number two, because he was a gospel eyewitness. Number three, he was a partaker in the glory that's to be revealed. And number four, he shares a shepherding call. So when Peter... uh, qualifies his instructions by reference to his authority, he does so in this context, identifying himself first as a fellow elder. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness, he continues. So a fellow elder. So uh, reprising his brief opening salutation, Peter is going to refer to himself as an apostle in so many words, but it's interesting that he refers to himself as a fellow elder Firstly, notice in chapter 1, verse 1, he introduces his entire letter this way. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles in the dispersion, and then he goes on to mark the regions. So in typical epistle or letter format, its audience or its author, audience, and occasion are three, you know, uh, reference structure points. So as far as author goes, we find that this is written by Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. But Peter doesn't refer to himself as an apostle first and foremost in chapter 5, but instead as a fellow elder. I find this to be significant. So biblical authority is always, let me say this as well, biblical authority is always and only by delegation. 
So what gives Peter the right or the ground or the authority to speak in such a way? Well, as an elder and as an apostle, he has received authority to proclaim the word of God as an ambassador or a deputy. So a deputy is one who carries authority, but not intrinsic to him. That is to say, we don't listen to Peter because he was an amazing saint. No, we listen to Peter in spite of the fact that he denied his Savior three times. Why do we heed Peter's instructions? Well, we do so because we recognize that Jesus Christ invested authority in Peter, a delegated authority. He was a deputy, an ambassador. He's speaking for the authority of someone else. And we find that Peter received this calling by virtue of the grace of God alone, not because of his own merit. But we also see that he received this calling and authority by way of testimony. There was proof positive evidence that Peter was called to be an apostle, an ambassador, a deputy of Christ's authority in the course of the calling that's recorded in Scripture. In <coughs> uh, 5 verses 1 and 2, our passage today, referring to authority, he expands his apostolic credentials a little bit. And again, he refers to himself as a fellow elder. Now, rather than pulling rank, do you know what pulling rank is? It's basically playing the card of, you know, my superior office. So, hey, listen to me. I'm an apostle here. You know, don't forget that. Instead of playing that trump card of apostle, Peter instead refers to himself as an elder. Instead of asserting the sovereignty of the office of apostle, which would be, arguably, his prerogative, indeed, he had special and specific calling as an apostle. Nevertheless, in this instance, he assumes a posture of humility and instruction, speaking from a position of parity, or meaning equal authority, as a fellow elder. And let me suggest the following. Peter's instruction anticipates that the leadership structure of the church after the apostolic age uh, will remain, yet it will change slightly. Are there any living apostles in the sense of the foundational apostles to the church alive today? This is a disputed question today, but let me answer unequivocally no. How do I know this? Well, if you turn to Revelation, you'll see a picture, uh, you know, a picture in visible form of principles that actually ground the entire bride of Jesus Christ. And in that picture are 12 foundation stones. Are there any foundation stones that we should expect to add to the new Jerusalem? The answer is no. Now, what that means is Peter shared a special and a time-specific office as an apostle, and he himself bears the name of one of those foundation stones, so to speak, in that picture of the bride of Christ. However, there would come a day when the last living apostle would die. Kids, do you know who the last living apostle was, the last apostle to die? As far as history records, does anyone know? That would be the apostle John. After the apostle John died, did the church immediately say, oh no, the voices of authority are all gone. If we have any tension or conflict, difficulty, heresy, or any challenges in the church, we have no one around which to hold a church council. We might as well just give up now. Now, one answer to this dilemma was the Catholic church. The Catholic church holds to a continuing apostolic succession. So the Pope today, according to Roman Catholicism, holds similar vested delegated authority as Peter himself. This is not the view of Jesus Christ, and it's not the view of Peter. No, the apostles as such were a one-time uh, event 
Yet their words are sufficient to govern the church moving forward. Are there leaders in the church today? Yes, but they're elders. They're not apostles. And what is an elder? An elder is one who is called to lead in some sense God's church, either by helping to organize, facilitate, spiritual oversight. We see in here shepherding, proclaiming God's word. The office that I'm filling right now and proclaiming to you God's word is an office calling of an elder, for instance. Yet elders have equal authority among them. So Peter, in anticipating this condition after the last living apostle dies, introduces himself here as a fellow elder. His instruction anticipates the leadership structure that will remain after the last living apostle has gone to his heavenly reward. From the context of early church structure and texts like this in the Bible, we draw this principle of church leadership. There is parity or equality in authority among elders. Now, the other view that I told you, Roman Catholicism, for instance, or other church traditions that hold to it is called prelacy, a hierarchy of authority. So the higher you are in the chain of command, the more authority you have. Parity versus prelacy. Which one is biblical? Peter himself addresses the church as a fellow elder to demonstrate that parity among eldership is God's purpose and design to govern the church moving forward. Elders are equal in authority, accountable and answerable to one another. Though they may be diverse in some ways, like gifting, not every elder is given the same gift, let's say, to uh, administer things. I'm not very good at that. Or to preach what I'm, uh, the gift I'm operating in now. There can be diversity in these kinds of giftings. There can be differences in compensation, like how much money, and that corresponds to the so-called, or to honor, you know, they, uh, preaching positions worthy, worthy of double honor. That's not double respect, but in context, let me submit in some of these other passages, it has to deal, has to do with compensation or monetary reward for their efforts, so forth. And then also there can be disparity of influence. You can have an elder who is more influential than another, but this does not mean that they are any less equal in authority. So this is interesting and is significant because Peter is establishing a foundation from which the church can be governed in his absence. The church can be governed in different lands and nations, under different cultures, and in different ages and eras, and even 2,000 years later. We have in the Word of God sufficient means for our church to be governed today from passages like this. Second point of authority, Peter speaks as a fellow elder but he also speaks as a gospel eyewitness. So back to the calling of apostle. Hey kids, can you answer this question? What is special about an apostle? I said a few things before, but how would you answer that question? What is special about an apostle? Kids, do you have any answers? Say again, mom. Mom, kid at heart says they've seen the Lord. I'll take that. Anything else? What is special about an apostle? Say again, louder. Oh, a little gun shy there. <laughs> All right, no problem. So what's special about an apostle? Well, one big key item is what my mom said, that they have seen the Lord. Now, in chapter 5, Peter says as much of himself. He says, not only is he a fellow elder, he's a witness of sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. A witness of the sufferings of Christ. Peter refers to this eyewitness or this gospel eyewitness status that he and like apostles share. He refers to it again in 2 Peter 
the next book, chapter 1, verse 16. Listen. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. You see, there's something special about the calling of Peter and those who joined him in this office. They were, among other things, eyewitnesses. They saw and experienced Jesus and His glory. For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, quote, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, close quote, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain. Kids, when did that happen? When was Peter on a mountain and heard a voice with James and John that said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased? We call that the Mount of Sinai. Close, not Sinai. Mount of Transfiguration. Very good. At the Mount of Transfiguration, the eyewitnesses, <coughs> excuse me, Peter, James, and John, saw the glory, if you will, a window of the pre-incarnate Christ. The power of Jesus, evident, even in the way his face shone as the second person of the Trinity eternally glorious before he took on flesh and stepped into human clothes, if you will, to accomplish the purposes of redemption. These are the kinds of things that Peter was eyewitness to. Now he adds to this eyewitness to the majesty of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, the fact that he also saw his sufferings. Back in our uh, verse in chapter 5, 1 Peter, I, he says, I'm a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ a gospel eyewitness. This, unique, to the, this uh, unique aspect to the apostolic office is expounded throughout Peter's words, and as uh, such, it becomes a foundational, as, uh, a foundational qualification, if you will. The credentials of the apostles are marked by this. They were gospel eyewitnesses. So why should we listen to Peter? When he gives instructions to the church, he saw with his own eyes the very price of our redemption. He heard with his own ears the commission of his Savior giving him this job. And he experienced in his own day-to-day uh, you know, -day life and activities a partaking in the glory that was promised. This would be number three. Peter's a fellow elder, a gospel eyewitness, and a partaker of the glory. He says in verse 1, I'm a fellow elder, a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Peter is a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. What is this glory? What is this participation in it that is being spoken of here? Well, when the Holy Spirit, the promised Holy Spirit, who was give, uh, given by way of promise in John 16, 7 through 11 by Jesus. That's the passage where he said, it's good for me to go away because I will send a helper in my place. The Holy Spirit will indwell you. And then how would the church know when this significant moment had arrived? Well, it was attended by signs, signifying that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit was now a reality for all believers from now on. And some of these significant events included the manifestation of speaking in tongues. In Acts chapter 2, we come upon one example, uh, this example in verses 14 through 16. Let's go to verse 6. And at the sound of the multitude, and at this sound, the multitude came together and were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. So this is at, after the day of Pentecost. The disciples are going out, 
and this manifestation of the glory to come was evident in their experience as they spoke with languages previously unknown to them, and the Cretans and Arabians and the, those from Cyrene and Rome and uh, other names, Pontus, Asia, Cappadocia, Judea, Mesopotamia, Elamites, Medes, Parthians, and those are just the ones I can pronounce, I think. They all heard the words of the disciples in their own tongue. And then they said to one another, what does this mean? But the others mocking said they're filled with new wine. Now Peter, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, being filled with this Holy Ghost, which was evidenced in his ability to speak in other languages, and evidence of this gospel boldness answers the question by following. Acts 2, 2, 14, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice, Peter did, and addressed them, quote, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these men are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And then he goes on to quote from the minor prophet, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. So in this, let me submit that Peter was partaking in the glory to come. In other words, this moment signified the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the arrival of the third person of the Trinity to attend the way of every believer from now on. We know that this moment in redemptive history, this milestone has been reached because what Joel prophesied is taking place in your own hearing. Other things happen too, other signs. The very next chapter, 3.1, Peter and John, notice... Our author, again, Peter, with his cohort here, they're going up to the temple at the hour of prayer at the ninth hour. And a man is laying there lame. From birth he had to be carried around. They laid him daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms and entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. Do you guys remember what Peter said? This guy's like, sirs, can I have some alms? And Peter says, silver and gold? But such as I have, in the name of Jesus Christ, awesome. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Nazareth, rise up and walk. Kids, what happened next? Yeah, so uh, Peter took him by the right hand, raises him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And the guy was super excited, verse 8, And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. He didn't even need physical therapy. <laughs> Instantly, walking and leaping and praising God. What did Peter have to give to this man? He had partaken in the glory to come. And the glory of the Holy Spirit, signified by signs, wonders, miracles, tongues, etc., he gave a portion of this man, so to speak, in this healing. So this is a point of reference for Peter. And this is how we put two and two together, may I suggest. The same power that can signify the Holy Spirit's arrival and raise a man lame from birth to walk and to leap and to praise God at the temple gate beautiful, that same Holy Spirit can equip a church beleaguered in times of uncertainty and conflict to stand firm on the gospel, unshaken and unwavering. Now, we've mistakenly sometimes assumed 
that the power to raise the dead or make the lame walk is more amazing than the power to endure to still love Jesus when the whole culture hates you for it or most of the culture hates you for it. Not so. How many of you know somebody or a handful of people, maybe many people, who once confessed Christ and have fallen away? Just nod your head for a moment if you know people like that. There's people nodding all over this tiny congregation. You know, I remember growing up in the zeal of youth and having a strong youth group program in our church back in the day, or the church that I attended youth group at, and so, so on and so forth. And if you ask me in those moments of worshiping at a fevered pitch, and us talking about our co mutual commitment to Christ, and the only thing, you know, that we would discuss in moments like this, you know, supercharged after your latest, you know, spiritually themed summer camp, is whether we were going to be a preacher or a missionary. And if someone asked me at the time, where will you all be in 30 years? Has it been that long? 20 years, somewhere in between there. And how the percentage that have fallen away, I would not believed it for a moment. Nevertheless, sadly, it is true. The amount of apostate people in my own experience that I grew up with that once confessed Christ is heartbreaking. And you ever wake up and think to yourself, almost scared, why am I still standing in the truth? Well, the answer is the same as what Peter said. You have become a partaker in the glory to come. The Holy Spirit is keeping you. And it's no less miraculous than a lame man walking. After all, what would it profit a man to gain the use of his legs to walk and leap? Lots of people can walk and jump. That would walk and jump their way all the way to hell. But how much greater is the miracle of preservation of the Holy Spirit indwelling you to keep you enduring and loving Jesus Christ, even when most of the culture says it's hate speech or whatever the latest epithet is against his church. So Peter says, you know, by these means of authority, transferring unto you, I'm giving you means of grace by which to stand. And this is greatly encouraging for the church. And as I say, for our own church, because we can relate to many of the conditions that plagued the early church then. Finally, there's a shepherding call that reinforces Peter's words. For this, turn to John 21. Now, Peter, why should we listen to him? Well, you know, he's going to give advice on shepherding shortly here. And uh, we should listen to Peter in part because he was called to be a shepherd himself, and he was called by the great shepherd himself. So Peter knows what he's talking about. In 21.15, you may remember this. This is the reinstatement and commission of Peter as an apostle by our Lord himself. Verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Kids, Jesus said to him, what? Three words, a commandment to Peter. If you love me, do what? Feed my, feed my sheep or feed my lambs. Very good. He said to him a second time, Jesus to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord. You know that I love you, he said to him, Jesus to Peter, tend my sheep. Very good. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him a third time, do you love me? And he answered him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him one last time, feed my sheep. Very good. And then... Uh, uh, Jesus goes on to describe that the price that Peter will pay in his apostolic commission will end in martyrdom, in fact. Now, 
If Peter had been given the commission to feed sheep three times by Jesus, reinstating him to an apostolic office and giving him his marching orders, this is greatly encouraging to the church. Peter was called to be a shepherd. What do shepherds do? They feed the sheep and they guard the flock against its enemies. And Peter did both by identifying false teaching, establishing them in sound doctrine, and feeding them the gospel, a steady diet all through his writings over and over again. So that's a point of reference for Peter's concluding words. We should listen to him. He is a voice of authority, and as much as he's a fellow elder, a gospel eyewitness, a partaker in glory, and himself has a shepherding call. Next and more briefly, who is his audience? Well, there are three categories of audience that we can see here. First of all, he's going to speak to the elders. Secondly, to younger congregants. And third, to the church collectively. I exhort the elders among you, 5.1, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. And then here's his instructions to the elders. Verse 2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, and so on. But his audience is not restricted in this passage to elders. He goes on to say in verse 5, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. And then let's add a third category in the same verse. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. So there's three categories of hearers, if you will, readers of his, that his uh, words are written to. Elders, younger congregants, and the church collectively. First of all, as to elders, it strikes me that when it comes to sins in leadership, they, there are two motives stemming from our sinful condition that tend to corrupt institutional leadership. And I suggest Peter addresses both of them and cuts them off, heads them off at the pass. And those two Perennial sins, common sins for those called to any type of leadership are as follows. Passivity and power. If you're called to be a leader and you are walking in the flesh, you will tend to sin in one of two ways, may I suggest. Being passive as to that call or seeking power for oneself. Passivity. It's an abdication or it's shirking. It's not being faithful to responsibility. An abdication of responsibility. Just not doing what God has called you to do, being shy in this regard. Now, think of the sin of Adam. Adam was called to be a leader, a steward. He was called to steward the whole earth, in fact, and certainly his wife's own soul. And God had a relationship with Adam himself, had a calling to be a leader in this world that God had established and created. And the conditions of his life hinged upon obedience to that call. And what was Adam's sin in this regard? Passive. He abdicated his responsibility to clearly take a, draw a line in the sand and say, serpent, this far or no farther. You cross this line, crush your head with my heel. A second Adam did that. When the serpent crossed the line <clears throat> in God's purposes in all history and began to transgress God's law and raise himself as an authority above the Lord, the second Adam did the right thing. He didn't abdicate his responsibility. He stamped on his head at Calvary. Now, the first... Uh, so that would be the first sin that is associated with leadership call. The second is power. If we don't sin in this way, we may in another. Uh, power, the sin of power is tyrannical lust, pursuit of self-interest at the expense of, our, uh, of others. 
it could be and, and simply uses one's position to exploit it for his own gain. So what is the lust of power? It's exploiting one's position or office as leader at the expense of others for one's own gain. Peter heads both of these sins off at the pass by directing the flock to order their affairs and to govern the church in a particular way, to not be passive and shirk their responsibility and not to do so in a self-serving way, but to do it like him, to be a leader like Jesus was, laying down his life for the sheep. We'll touch on a verse perhaps later along those lines. So his audience also includes younger congregants. If there are leaders, then presumably there are followers, right? By definition, it goes hand in hand. And who who are those who need to be led? Well, he describes them in verse 5 as the, quote, younger. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. And may I suggest this category of younger isn't necessarily age, but age is a good analogy. So what Peter means here, presumably, is that one who are younger in the faith, who have less foundational understanding and certainty about what the Word of God says, and therefore are looking to good shepherds for direction, both for the feeding, to receive the Word of God, and for protection, to guard from forces who would interfere with God's purposes for the church. So this is a second category that Peter addresses, a second audience. The younger in principle, more so in years. Elders are first addressed, which presupposes qualifications for biblical submission to eldership. In other words, you're not supposed to submit to just anyone. You're supposed to submit to shepherds, not because they merely claim to be shepherds, but you're supposed to submit to shepherds that are good shepherds who follow the instructions of Peter. Now, I've given you two sins of leadership. Let me give you two sins for those of us in the following position. And let me suggest to you as well that every elder, every leader is also in some sense in the following position as well. There are two sins that we could fall into in this regard. One is the self-sufficient and the other we'll call the gullibly naive. The self-sufficient congregant tends to hold all authority and suspicion, period. So uh, no, no matter where they turn or where they look, they always find reason to reject the credentials of the shepherd, the, re- the elder, and so forth. So that can be a sin we can fall into, self-sufficiency. Secondly, the gullibly naive. And this is being agreeable at the cost of discernment, that we simply are a pushover and we don't do our due diligence in vetting claims to authority. Both of these, of course, are dangerous. And so for younger congregants, Peter gives them a picture of what legitimate leadership is and then encourages them to submit to that. Nothing more, nothing less. And finally, he he instructs the church collectively. In closing, wrapping everybody up into this admonition, he says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is an echo of chapter 3, verse 8. He said again here, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. So this is a repeated pattern in in, uh, Peter's epistle. In chapter 3, this is on the heels of kind of detailing relationships in the context of human institutions. So he's gone through government and uh, slave-master relationships and then within marriage, and then finally says in, to all the church, finally, all of you have unity, 
Similarly, in our text, he addresses elders, he addresses congregants, and then he says, in summary, all of you have humility one towards another, and then he saves the majority of his admonition, which we'll cover at a later time, for the church collectively, verses 6 and following. So here we have his audience. So, so far, these points of reference for Peter's concluding words, we find them clarified as we consider who's speaking and who he's speaking to, authority, audience. And finally, let's close with his admonitions, especially to elders in verses 2 through 5. <clears throat> First Peter 5, 2, speaking to elders, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Does the crown of glory come with the leadership call? No. It comes as a result of being faithful to the thankless, self-sacrificing, servant, slave calling of biblical leadership. One of the huge... I really hate uh, st stuff on books on leadership. I probably said this to you before. But leadership, you know, in, the influencing of people toward a particular end is a real obsession with our culture. And I, I kind of really, it just rubs me the wrong way. It's one of my pet peeves, you know, uh, principles of leadership. And I'm sure the shelf at any given bookstore is really big on how to basically persuade people in your direction. But the reason that I reject that out of hand is from what Peter instructs me. A leader is not, by definition, one who persuades others. But instead, it's one who is faithful to the calling. And there are great leaders in Scripture who didn't convert a single soul. And God used as actually a voice of judgment to harden the hearts of the hearers. Isaiah, Jeremiah, and some of Jesus' own listeners among them. Now, there's no secular book on leadership that would say, here's a good way to turn people off to your message. No, that's never one of the tools in the box of how to make friends, influence people, or persuade the masses. Nevertheless, it is a legitimate call of leadership at certain times. And why? Because there are moments in the providence of God where the hearts of a culture are so hard that those who are receptive to the truth are a very small remnant indeed. Will you still heed the call to be a leader even if there is no crown of glory in it and most people hate you for it? And I'm preaching to you as well because you may not be called to be an elder in the church, but every a Christian is called to be an ambassador of the gospel in some sense. But let me tell you, in our culture, there's no glory in it. You won't receive a crown of glory. And I think many of the megachurch influential, mile-wide, inch-deep visions of church structure that we have today are exactly that because they're seeking for a crown of glory through the calling of leadership with a Christian bumper sticker on the back. And all they're getting is their reward now but bad fruit as far as the kingdom of God is concerned, speaking in general terms. If you want to be faithful, you got to do what Jesus did. you got to be willing to proclaim the truth, even if it makes men hate you. And this is our call. He said, I've come not to bring peace, but the sword. And my gospel will turn, in some cases, parents against children. Closest of family members may pay a high price for taking up my cross and following me. Are you willing to do it? When he speaks to elders, he speaks in two categories. He gives negative commands and positive ones. 
So don't do it this way and do it this other way. So we are to lead elders and those who are called to any leadership call, not under compulsion, but willingly as the Lord would have you. Not under compulsion. Make sure your heart is in it. Last, the Lord to give you a heart to be a strong and good influencer of others. Parents, this applies to you. I'm broadening out the applications here. This applies to you in leading your children. Don't do devotions under compulsion. Uh, some of us parents can raise their hands and say, guilty, I'm doing this because I should. Don't just do it because you should, but do it willingly and ask the Lord to give you a heart to lead your family, fathers and husbands, to lead your family spiritually and to do it with your heart in it. Not to check off a box, but to do it uh, as the Lord would have you, as the joyful privilege that it really is. And again, a not command, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. What would be an example of shameful gain? Well, embracing a leadership direction, call, or position in order to receive that crown of glory. <clears throat> oh, this is such a subtle temptation. Because especially in the church, all the messaging can be right. But underneath it all can be this hidden motive that, you know what? If I'm really honest, in thy deepest heart of hearts, this is the way, projecting humility, that I can achieve a crown of glory. No, that is shameful gain. The crown of glory comes later. And it's, it's one that you don't receive without suffering, according to Peter. Calling to leadership in the, in the kingdom of God is a call to suffer. And even if it's not a call to suffer the persecution real intensely of the culture, it's a call to suffer the death of your own pride because it's a call to lay down your life and to serve as a servant, to stoop low, to wash feet, and to, uh, and to serve in the model of Jesus Christ. There's no glory in it as such until later. The reward that comes as a result of the chief shepherds appearing. And this is in the future. Third, uh, not command, if you will, negative. Not domineering over those in your charge. And this speaks to that lust for power, abusing or exploiting your office for personal gain at the expense of others. And this is what the Pharisees did. For cross-reference, turn to Mark 10. So such a great, this, I submit to you, provides the foundation for Peter's words. Peter is an apostle, delegated authority. Where is the original authoritative word coming from? Well, passages like this. This is uh, Mark chapter 10, verses 42 through 45. Listen to what our Lord declares to Peter and to all his disciples. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave of all. Must be slave of all. Verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to serve, to be served, excuse me, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There are those who embrace a position of leadership thinking they deserve more than Jesus Christ himself. What blasphemy do you deserve all the accolades and the intrinsic crown of glory that comes from reveling in the power of a position? Absolutely not. Jesus, as our example, laid down his life, stooped low and condescended. He took on the form of a servant and was not impressive to most. But in so doing, he did receive the crown of God's glory 
later. And so this is the call. Don't do these things under compulsion. Don't do them for shameful gain. Don't be domineering over those in your charge. But on the contrary, the positive commands, be shepherds, overseers, and examples. Uh, and to the young, he goes on to say, submit yourself to good shepherds in so many words. Don't do this under compulsion, or verse 2, shepherding the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. So be an overseer, be mindful of conditions that might affect your flock or for those under your charge. So you always have that watchful eye, guarding the premises, making sure that the enemy is not encroaching upon the lines, establishing a strong and fortified perimeter through the means of God's grace that he supplies. This means being mindful of potential threats to the church that come by way, I would say, primarily of cultural trends these days that infect the preaching, the clarity of the, of the gospel and its un, unadulterated, and its unadulterated authority as we have it from Scripture. But also to shepherd the flock, as we said before, this means good feeding, feeding the sheep well, feeding them from the Scriptures, directly from the Word of God, not from your clever insights or life experience. A pastor who tells more stories than he expounds God's Word, may I suggest, may not be giving the best diet, may be full of that hydrogenated something or other, or that corn syrup, everything my wife hates to her credit, on the labels of a Twinkie and whatnot. So the shepherd who, but rather shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. What does a good shepherd do? Many things. Feed, protect. One of the pictures of shepherd that I love the most is the shepherd as the door. Jesus says in one of his gospel analogies, I am the door. And there's a picture in the Near East of shepherding protocol or whatever you call it, where a lot of times you'd have an enclosure and there'd be no swinging door, you know, traditionally as we know it on hinges, no electric fence, no razor wire on the top, but an alert shepherd. And that shepherd would often, imagine this in a gap here, a shepherd would often rest lightly, sleep lightly as the door of the sheepfold. Recently, I saw a video, and it was a good example of a shepherd being the door to his congregation, if you will. I can't commend the shepherd on any of his doctrine because I just don't know it. But maybe you've seen the video, a, a preacher with an accent in Canada whose very service while he was preaching, I assume, or conducting the affairs of the church was invaded by illegitimate authorities. The state, in the form of the police, come in, barge through the door, and demand, I suppose, that the congregation cease and desist, why, you guessed it, COVID restrictions. Well, they had just breached, if you will, in some form, the door of the sheepfold that this shepherd is called to guard. And what does he say? And he was later interviewed, and thanks, brothers, for sending me this uh, example of an illustration by way of video. In an interview, he said, we need to learn three words, no, get out. And I say to that, amen. Because this pastor in this instance was being the door. He's saying, sorry, you cannot encroach upon the door of worship at this church. Here, I hope you're reassured to know that we've had some discussions of what, hap what might happen even in our congregation if our actual service was being invaded by illegitimate authorities. What if the county sheriff Sheriff showed up, whoop, whoop, you know, in the flashing lights in the parking lot. They stop right there. They come in and they say, we're sorry, you're going to have to cease and desist. You are in violation of COVID orders. We kind of talk through a possible scenario, right? And so some of the elders in the church 
would first reason with them and say, no, we are here on our constitutional legitimate uh, right to assemble, and this is a place where we worship Jesus Christ. They're out there guarding the door. If that didn't work, then uh, eventually everybody could you know, go out to the parking lot, but I am not going to stop preaching. That's the commitment I made to the elders at this church. I will not stop preaching until I'm physically forced, and if they force me, so be it. But I believe that is the proclamation of God's word is serious enough that we need to find the place to draw the line in the sand. And then if an illegitimate authority wants to step, it over, step over it, we're not going to abdicate our responsibility. We're going to say, nope, I'm sorry. As far as this domain is concerned, I have a responsibility to, try, take char, or to, to do right by this flock, and I will not have their feeding time interrupted by an illegitimate authority. So anyways, these are applications that may become more relevant, and certainly our friends to the north are experiencing these kinds of tests right now. Good shepherding sometimes means being confrontational. doesn't mean being domineering over your flock, but it certainly means being domineering over the wolves, and domineering over the enemies who would seek to do damage to God's church. <clears throat> so Peter speaks this way to the elders, and he speaks in these shepherding terms. And then he encourages the young. He says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you. This is the third category with humility, one towards another. So the young, those who are among the congregants, younger in the faith, do not be <clears throat> self-sufficient, tending to hold all authority and suspicion, neither be gullibly naive, agreeable at the cost of discernment. Rather, find that expression of shepherding which best fits Peter's admonitions and be willing to join in the cause of guarding Christ's church from its enemies within and without. Within, waging war on our own sin, without declaring the authority of Jesus Christ even over kings and people who would seek to shut down with illegitimate law the gathering of the precious saints of God. Now finally, as Peter wraps up these words, he gives a charge and a call for all of us to embrace humility. Clothe, your, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. And this picture of clothing oneself is to embrace an identity, is to put on uh, something that now defines you. And so humility is supposed to be an identity that defines us and establishes as a good adjective to describe our interactions with one another the love that God gives believers. And this is a powerful tool. It's a tool that will give the church grace to stand in days of uncertainty and conflict. And he says in verse 6, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you. And notice, you'll see that pattern just like in leadership. If a leader humbles himself, being willing to suffer, even a lack of influence for Christ's namesake. In the proper time, the chief shepherd will appear and give him an unfading crown of glory. Likewise, to all, if you embrace, if you put on humility and humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, submit to him as your authority, your lawgiver, your truth standard. At the proper time, he may exalt you. Where does Peter get this suffering unto glory? He gets it from the gospel. Leaders are supposed to be good examples. He has said, being examples to the flock so that when the chief shepherd appears and so on. And who gave us the example of suffering unto glory? Jesus did. The promises that God has granted us 
The eye of faith holds and recognizes that the cost in the meantime is worth it. Are the promises worth the cost to be a faithful follower of Jesus, however humble, or a faithful leader in his church, however small in number, the congregation we can boast? Absolutely. The rewards, the promises are worth the cost. How does Peter know this? Well, we go back to his testimony as a witness of the sufferings of Jesus Christ. As a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker of the glory that has been revealed, I speak this way. So many words. Now, in closing, these admonitions are coming from an eyewitness, a gospel eyewitness to the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The sufferings of our Lord, symbolically pictured in these elements, the shedding of His blood, the breaking of His body through the piercing of His side, and the piercing of His wrists and His feet with the nails that affixed Him, that attached Him to that cruel instrument of Roman execution, those things Peter witnessed with his own eyes. He was there. The sufferings of Christ, he witnessed. And these, can start to get a little inside track on Peter's heart, were the very cost of his own restoration in John 21. And they were the substance of his commission. What is he going to feed the sheep with? Peter himself witnessed Jesus crucified moments before he had just betrayed this man who is now being nailed to the cross, and as he looks up on the blood streaming out of his wrists and feet, at some point he realizes, that is the cost of my own betrayal. Because Jesus died on the cross, Peter can be forgiven of him denying his Savior three times and not being willing to suffer and join him in that. And more than this, because Jesus died on the cross, Peter has something to say. This is the substance of of the food that he is going to tend and feed Christ's sheep with. Jesus Christ died, buried, resurrected, ascended. Time and again, Peter feeds the sheep. He tends to the flock as we read his scriptures with this message over and over again. And the reason his message is as relevant today as it was then is because he was an apostolic witness to the very ground and means whereby the church can be preserved for all ages, his sin atoned for and the sins of all the elect the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Now, as we think about this, we might wish that we were there. As Peter looked upon the witness of Jesus Christ suffering on his behalf, he was transformed, transformed from a defiant, impulsive, reactionary turned coward, you know, kind of adjectives to describe Peter's prior personality. He was transformed from a defiant, sometimes impulsive, often reactionary, sometimes coward, to an apostolic foundation stone for the church, indeed our church, even today. Now this morning at the Lord's table, we have opportunity through this symbolic representation to witness the, our own means of deliverance from sin and also the means and substance of the doctrine and the truth and the scripture we yet proclaim today. And as we witness in so many pictures and words today, the body and blood of Jesus Christ, it has the same power to transform us, whatever our systemic sins might have been, from a one-time rebel, defiant, impulsive, reactionary, coward, whatever we were, to someone who can proclaim with authority, even under pressure, without wavering, and to do so faithfully the apostolic truth that Christ is dead, buried, and resurrected for sinners. Period. So I encourage you today, 
If you're a believer in this room, and only if you trust Jesus Christ and His blood to save you from your sins, look upon the witness of His sufferings and be encouraged. More than this, as you look upon Jesus and behold Him, be transformed, as the Scriptures say, into the same image, even as by the Spirit of God. Let us transition in prayer. Lord, we thank You for these moments that Your grace has preserved for us. We thank You for Your Spirit that is ever working to preserve Your church and indwells every true believer. I pray as we witness the cost of our salvation, even in these elements today, that it would greatly strengthen and encourage us to stand as it transformed Peter and all true believers. May it continue its transforming work as many days as you tarry and give us confidence to stand in a day when our faith is challenged. By the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we know this is possible and it's worth it because His glory is so deserving. We pray that He would be magnified through the witness of His ever-sanctified church. Through these means, in Jesus' name, amen. So those who are seated,